Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Open Bar Experience. I am your host, David Thackeray. I'm a hospitality professional with two decades of experience in bar and restaurants. My pursuit in this podcast is of having difficult conversations of our industry and of society as a whole. All right, let's go ahead and get right to it. Yes. With an old label, I see where you're going with this. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Well, this is interesting. I have just been handed this. Uh, something I just discovered, a 1930s recording, part of the folk song collection of the Library of Congress. And a fitting song, if I may say so, about Schumann. You know, Schumann is the military soldier. There's a concept that I want to introduce you to and that I want you to be aware of. And in order to drive that point, um, uh, that's the, the, I used the clip for Wag the Dog that you just heard. And in that, if you haven't seen the, that movie, it's from the 90s, Dustin Hoffman and Robert De Niro. Uh, Willie Nelson is in it and all that, but the two main characters are, are those two actors. And one, what they're doing is um, a, a Washington operative, Robert De Niro, goes to uh, Los Angeles, to Hollywood, and gets this Hollywood producer, Dustin Hoffman's character, to produce a war, a war that is not happening, that doesn't exist, that is, it has, does not exist at all. And they pick uh, Albania because it's a place that nobody knows anything about. And so they're like, well, that's perfect. You know, they don't know anything about it, so they don't know what the geopolitics is. And they run this thing to get a president that, uh, uh, I guess, flirted with some intern um, to get reelected. And so the reason that I, I, I chose that clip of the old shoe is because they choose the soldier that is supposed to be rescued based on his name. They uh, create a song um, for which Willie Nelson is kind of like the consultant in that, if you if you may. He's not Willie Nelson. He's some other guy. But anyways, he's the one that creates his song. And they make it sound old, and they put it in the, in the music library. And one of the uh, 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 ladies that work in the with the uh, president in whatever office administrator something like that um she's also kind of having a relationship with this reporter and she's the one that kind of says don't you remember that song so it's all planted right and then uh dustin hoffman and robert de niro drive around at night and they throw shoes up in the uh in the trees in the um power lines you know old school way and what they're doing is they're doing is is called priming it's a priming effect right and what priming is that they're doing is like when you see the shoes it's like subconscious like you're not looking at the shoes you just kind of glance over and you see it and it's there in your subconscious and then you hear this song and then you know the guy's name is shoemaker and and they create all of this to to connect you the the listener the uh 
the the viewer, the American people in this case, to go with it, right, and to elect the president in order to take down this, you know, keep us from going to war or going to war, right? Fake war, right? So this is all fake news. So the, the idea of fake news and creating it is not anything new. I mean, this movie was, I think, in 97 or 98, something like that. It's, it's, this is way back. And, and the psychology of it goes even further. Um, the, the priming effect is if I say food, right, and then I was to give you some letters, S-O uh, blank P, uh, what are you going to think about? And if I was to say um, wash or clean, and I give you the same letters, S-O blank P, what do you think about? So the, those are two different ones. When you, I'm, I'm saying food, and I give you those letters, you probably think soup. And I say clean or wash, and I give you the same letters, you think soap. And so the first word is to prime. And essentially, that's what the shoes are that they throw. That's what the music is. It's just to kind of embed it into your head and, and you can't stop thinking about it. And the reason why I wanted to bring this up and have you at least consider this is because if you think of how the news cycles are 24 hours and they're just they obsess over one particular um, subject or event or occurrence or just one particular piece of news is very important and in today everything half the shows on the news channels are editorials meaning that they're all opinion this started with fox news back in the 90s again you know bill o'reilly and all those people they were just people that were were editorials so they, they weren't they were they're pretending to be given the news but they're really giving their opinion eventually msn and, and cnn they just had to follow suit they, they held out as long as they could and until, until about 10 years ago that's what it turned out but that's just that big media, big money media. But then think about the stuff that your algorithms on Facebook, where it only recently, when the, they, they changed last year, those algorithms, they give you what you like. And I mentioned this before on the last uh, episode, where it's like, you know, it, it, what you like is what it, these algorithms give you. And then think of what, um, Instagram is. Instagram works off of the same algorithm. So you're feeding these images of stuff that you like constantly, right? And you're getting the comments and news and opinions of people on Facebook that are uh, stuff that you like. Same thing, you know, with Twitter and pretty much anything on the internet these days is, is tailored to you. So the opportunities to prime you to believe one thing or another are endless. And again, all I'm saying right now, right? Just listen to this. All I'm saying is consider that idea. Just take a moment and think about it, right? Because social media detox is a real thing. Whenever you add the unemployment rate that we have going on right now and you add the stress of getting sick or the people that are fighting against wearing a mask when you add that antagonism and and that concern and then you add the protests you know with uh, uh, black lives matter and the anti uh, police brutality and killings 
that adds another level of stress. So in, in addition to being primed, you also have this acute view of things because you're either for or against. Because these days you can't be neutral. And, and the reason why is not because you're being unreasonable. It is because the issues are at the point where they are make or break. That is something that we're dealing with in the industry to where how do you how do you reopen bars without getting exposing people to to COVID-19 and putting your staff, yourself and your community and guests at risk. So right now, all I'm saying is consider that. Look it up. Take some time away from all the bullshit missing behind enemy lines it's all you know thinking ahead thinking ahead that's what producing is it's like being a plumber yes like being a plumber do your job right nobody should notice mm -hmm. only when you fuck up everything gets full of shit mm -hmm. elite military team sergeant william schumann the old shoe what do you say we line up the president for the peace prize hey our job ends on election day oh yes but come on just for the symmetry of the thing that's right Oh, if Kissinger can win the Peace Prize, I wouldn't be surprised to wake up and find out I'd won the Preakness. Well, yes, but our guy did bring peace. Yeah, but there wasn't a war. All the greater accomplishment. Today, my guest is Chef Omar Perene, a widely acclaimed chef, restaurateur, and television personality. He is uh, one of the most recognized culinary faces in Latin America. Growing up in the industry, This former chef instructor of the Cordon Bleu in Mexico has already had a taste of celebrity status. He had four seasons of a Latin American top-rated cooking show named Yo Cocinero, Me the Cook. At age 16, Omar made international headlines when he earned his first executive chef title at a well-regarded restaurant group in Caracas, Venezuela. In 2015, Omar opened Houston's uh, Pesca Seafood Culture as executive chef showcasing seafood traditions and fish from around the world. Omar is somebody that I met over at Pesca and has been a, an exciting person to be around. He is someone with a lot of energy and with a lot of talent. But as he clearly puts it, it's his enthusiasm that makes him different or special or that is what he attributes as his biggest talent. And so let's go ahead and... Uh, Give it a listen. <laughs> All right, so uh, Omar, uh, how uh, how have you been? David, thank you for having me, man. I've been great, just living the dream. <laughs> so I get to see you. Well, not see you. It's, it's here, your smiley face. <laughs> How's everything going? Uh, everything is moving along, man. You know, here with uh, just like everyone else, um, some quarantine and some going out a little bit to resupply and and just dealing with the um with this world that we have right now just kind of surviving through these crazy times i know i, I particularly never thought i was gonna experience anything like this in my lifetime and guess what <laughs> yeah we're living it yeah we are living it i mean this is uh this is the uh, beyond the the wildest dreams right Absolutely. Mm -hmm. so um I wanted to to first get a little bit about your background and um, you know how you came into the industry, and um, and so my first question to you is, 
How old were you when you started to cook? Cook, just cook. Uh, you know, it's, it might be a little hard for me to answer that question because I do not recall like, specifically what was the first thing I cooked or whatever at home. I certainly just started cooking at home, at home when, since I was a kid. Maybe what, be know, kid, seven, eight, six. Like, <laughs> so the, the, and, and the dynamic there was basically my mom was a an executive for for a software company and she took care of cooking and, and all that good stuff during the weekend so most of our you know eating was about reheating <laughs> so my mom basically raised my sister and i with a bunch of post-its everywhere around the house so you know when you woke up there was going to be a post-it almost in the ceiling saying you know good morning uh, mommy loves you and there's food in the fridge and and here's the clothes that you need to wear and blah blah so she's very like OCD and, and organized uh, and, and post-its was her way to show us, point us the, 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 the path basically <laughs> because she was at work. So okay. uh, I was basically using a microwave every single day since I was, like I said, a child. Okay, and so... It came, it, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, so it came to the point where I started being picky about certain things and I was just like, hey mom, you know, I just don't like reheating fried stuff in the microwave i just don't like reheating whatever pasta in the microwave those are things i feel like i can do so the post-its then became how to not just use the microwave but how to fry stuff and how to you know boil pasta and just little things like that so i, I certainly remember just cooking at home having a bunch of fun doing the basic things and from like i said frying something boiling something or just making a key lime pie that's just something that i that i would do since i was very very young now, if you're asking me when did I start cooking professionally, that would be when I was 11. So when I when I turned 11, uh, one one very a very famous chef from Venezuela, his name is Sumito Steves, he happened to open a super like beyond fine dining restaurant in in my hometown Caracas, and and let me just tell you, it's one of those restaurants that just don't happen anymore where there's everything you can everything every single thing you can think of in the kitchen there's two of that <laughs> we had you know like a dedicated butcher area and prep area and garmanger and the bakery was incredible and so i just told my parents i need to go check this place out and my parents sure enough they took us there for dinner and i just really wanted to meet the chef uh the owner of the restaurant he's just trying to you know be nice and touch tables and whatnot. His name is Carlos Cesar Avila. He's just walking by the dining room and he sees an 11-year-old kid who looks upset. <laughs> so he just comes to the table and he's, you know, introducing himself. Hey, what's going on? And I explained to him how upset I was because I had told the server I wanted to meet the chef. I, sure, I didn't know much about life at that time and I could not <laughs> understand that the chef was not in the kitchen 100% of the time, in that kitchen. You know, I, I, I was just so certain that there was one chef, one kitchen, and that person could just never leave. Right. Um, I'm so glad that I have updated that thought process. <laughs> but um, anyway, so the owner tried to just make it up for me sort of thing, and he said, well, let me just give you a quick tour of the restaurant, and he walked me around, and he took me to the wine cooler. And I, I would, oh, will never forget this. He, I'm still like kind of pissy. So he grabs a bottle of uh, Gaia Sori San Lorenzo uh, Barbaresco, <laughs> and he hands it to me. He's like, "Oh, super excited! Look at this wine!" And as as he, you know, extends his hand and gives it to me, and I'm trying to reach, he he drops the bottle in the floor, and oh, wow. I just like, oh my, dude, I just turned 
white, yellow, all kinds of colors. And, and he was just bragging about this special flooring that he got. So the bottle, you know, bounced really quickly and nothing happened. <laughs> and then, you know, I started laughing. He started laughing. We, you know, he basically broke the ice and said, uh, well, A, it was, I was kidding. <laughs> and B, uh, now, we, you know, he basically felt like we could have a conversation. He said, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I said, I want to be a cook. And he pulled his business card and he gave it to me and said well you can sure come and cook with us whenever you want now granted he was the owner he didn't mean any of this <laughs> he just said it yeah, but he gave me his business card and i called him desperately until he finally answered a few days after that and and i said hey you remember me you told me i could come cook so what about friday can i come cook on friday <laughs> And like I said, he was the owner. He was not in the kitchen. He maybe didn't think this was actually going to happen, but he said, well, sure, I guess you can come. Yeah. So Chop some I onions. My, exactly. I told my parents, I, I got a job. <laughs> they were like, no, you don't. I said, yeah, I got a job. So they decided, okay, cool. They got me a chef code and took me there. And, well, there was a lot of drama in the kitchen between the chefs and the owner trying to figure out what the hell to do with that <laughs> with that 11-year-old. And why did you tell him yes? And he's like, yo, he's here. Deal with him, right? So they dropped me in the pastry kitchen. And I just had a blast. It was a phenomenal day. I was super excited. Slicing, you know, uh, apples and plating fancy stuff and using a, a creamer to, you know, plate stuff with foams and, and fake, not, not fake, like certification caviars and stuff. It was just mind-blowing. And I was just exposed to this great environment. At the end of that shift, I just told, asked them, you know, uh, how, how was it? Uh, can, can I come tomorrow? <laughs> and, and I guess I wasn't too much in the way. And they said, sure, sure <laughs> you can come tomorrow. And that's basically the story because I, you know, never, never stopped cooking ever since. So that, that, that was it. You kept showing up? <laughs> I, kept, I kept showing up. I'm like that, peop, that, that cook or that employee that... that gets fired and then shows up the next day and you're like dude but i fired you yesterday what are you doing so that was me and i just kept coming dude and i kept working in that restaurant uh, for free obviously right so it, it it turns out you know from that restaurant another chef called me to go with him to another restaurant that then led to another restaurant and i sort of became like the mascot of the culinary industry uh, in Venezuela, so to speak, and, and it was just great. That that's basically how, how it all started. And then I think there's a lot of things that became natural just by repetition. There's three things that you need, in, you know, to I guess we get to the point where you can actually be a leader, uh, which is obviously what I'm trying to do now or doing, <laughs> I should say. Uh, and the first thing is uh, knowledge, and that's just something that you know everybody nowadays has access to, right? You just have to want to know and there's a bunch of resources for that. Then the second one is experience. That's what you know we're kind of talking about, and and how just by doing things over and over, not only you know how to do things or you know things, but you know why why are those things important? And that's thing that's something that you get with experience. But I think the third aspect and the most important one is really attitude. I think I think your knowledge adds. I think your experience adds. But what multiplies is really the attitude. And let me tell you, I had a hell of a great attitude <laughs> when I was 11 years old. I think. Uh, you can certainly turn a, I can I can today grab a good person and turn him into a great cook. What I cannot do is turn a great cook into a great person. Uh, and I, I just, yeah, I, I just 
I understood that somehow very young and I understood that I had to just make other people feel special. So they would just let me be there. While I did not have knowledge and I while I did not have experience, those things I, I got later. I was first, like I said, working at the fine dining restaurant, kind of like Frenchy in this style, in the sense of, you know, white chef coat, the toque and, and, and you know, white apron and whatnot. Uh, and, and then I started working at this other restaurant when I was on summer vacation. So I was working in the mornings at this restaurant and then at 4 p.m. I would switch chef coats for, to, you know, to a black chef coat, no longer the cap, but the, the, the toque, but instead of a banda, instead of a bandana, uh, and I would go to a sushi Thai type restaurant, right? And it was just a new world, a complete new world. I, I don't know, I, I wasn't trying to find my, you know, my style at that point, you know, I wasn't trying to be creative. I just wanted to just, get a taste for everything that was out there and up oh, dude you can ask my parents like I, those those were the happiest years uh, of my life so far i was just so happy every night that i you know went home stinky as hell <laughs> smelling <laughs> like burnt oil but i was just so happy and yeah i guess it just started making sense so but the how does that affect the way you approach it now or does it you know and, I, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you from my point of view, from my perspective is that um, waiting tables was something that I did uh, for work. Right. So I could have free time and it was a balance. Right. I was able to balance my work time with my free time uh, right. so I could pursue my interests. But then when it came to bartending, which I did much later in, the, in my career, uh, I worked at as many different bars as I could to be able to get a perspective of being behind the bar that was uh, more complete so that way when people came at me with a drink then it didn't matter if it's the type of drink that you have at a restaurant or a club or a cocktail bar that I was going to able to either make it for them or let them know why I couldn't so that way the experience for people were were like okay yeah this is this is cool you're not trying to be an ass you just you can't do this or you can't do it the same way as I've experienced it and so but that came from being in different bars and experiencing different styles of the setup, uh, the the programs, and the clientele. It's it's definitely different now. Uh, nowadays, I'm like more selective with the things that I try to learn, uh, that I expose myself to. But back then, I just everything was exciting, literally everything. And I, I that's why I recommend anybody who wants to, you know, uh, get into the culinary world or hospitality world, just get a job, you know, at it before you really go to culinary school, or whatever, because you get a feel of it and, and you definitely have to fall in love with the, the, the lifestyle before before anything else, I, I, I would say. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the lifestyle is different. It's, uh, it's blue collar work all the way through, but right. you have to have a white collar demeanor. Right. You know, right, right, to, right. to a degree. And uh, so then so then that was really obviously you're young and, and you have experience. So everything is, is new and everything is experimental. When was the first time that you were in charge of anything? So... Or you were allowed to do something? So it's funny because I, I feel like I was put in, the, in, a, in a situation or in a position where I had to or was expected to be a chef uh, sooner than, than not only that I wanted or expected, but I deserved, quite frankly. So uh, let's see, after basically becoming a mascot of culinary industry in Venezuela, right, for years, just working with the, you know, top Italian guy and, and the French guy and the Spanish, you know, one and blah, blah, blah. So uh, one day, 
my dad, my my dad is responsible for a lot of things. Let me just tell you right now. <laughs> uh, he said, "Oh well, you know, you're really good at talking." Uh, I, I don't know if you agree with that, but he was like, "Oh, you're really good at talking," and I just think. I just think you should do a TV show, and and there you gotta understand there was a stigma back then, and maybe maybe a little bit now, but I, oops, I don't know. I, I don't hear those things anymore, and I obviously don't care anymore. <laughs> but back then there was a stigma of if you are on TV, then you're a TV chef. You're not real chef. You know, you, you the right. people that are on TV, they they just say it. They, they they just you know sing the song, but they don't really know the song, <laughs> and and. I just didn't want to be that, you know. I was so certain, and I that I didn't want to do that. And so I told my dad, "I am not an actor. I am a cook." <laughs> so uh, that that lasted maybe four months. My dad saying maybe you should do a cooking show, and me saying, "Hell no, I'm a cook. I'm not an actor." Until one day, I just said, "You know what, sir? If if, if that makes you happy, if that's gonna make you happy, just do whatever you want, you know." So my dad. He said, "Heard that?" And he sat down. He put together an email, I guess, with some pictures of me cooking or whatever. And he literally sh- shot an email to five, six different TV signals, uh, TV channels. So I, I, don't, I can't remember right now. But basically, the nicest one, which was com and the equivalent to a Food Network um, for us here, responded in within 48 hours. And what was interesting at the time is they wanted. They were casting and they were looking for a kid, basically, who could act as if as if he was a cook. So they interviewed <laughs> all of the, the 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 other chefs of the network. They asked him if they could bring their children, and they tried to set it up as if they were cooks or chefs. And it just didn't work, right? They were not. If they could talk, they couldn't cook, and if they could focus on cooking, then they couldn't talk back or, or you know talk to the camera while doing so. But it was just not natural. And and this happened at the exact same time that my that my dad sent that email and they said hey wait a minute <laughs> this is exactly what we're looking for so in a matter of uh weeks that uh there was a there was a team uh a camera crew that came from buenos aires uh to basically uh do some shooting and, and film a pilot for uh, with me and then i did that pilot i remember exactly how you know nervous I was putting this together with them I remember exactly the recipe that I did I was making bollos pelones <laughs> I, <laughs> I wish I could see this video now but anyways they got the video and I remember when I, while I was doing this pilot the most important thing to me was never just don't stop you know even if shit hits the fan just don't stop and and that's what I did and during my video you could tell that I forgot to bring salt to the studio and and I just basically use sugar, <laughs> and I know they noticed, you know. But I hope they noticed that I that I just kept it cool, you know. And so yeah. they were impressed, man. They said, hey, you know, let's do something. They sent me a contract, and like I said, in a couple of weeks, I was in in Buenos Aires with my dad, uh, basically training to do that first season. So the first job I had, I guess, was uh, my first season at uh, El Gourmet, and my my cooking. Uh, my cooking show was called Yo Cocinero. But then after TV, there's a group of investors who decided that, well, he's on TV, so I guess he's a chef. So uh, they decided they they wanted to open a restaurant with me and they made me a partner. There was just some sort of a sweat equity situation going on there. And, and at 16 years old, I opened my very first restaurant. 
has a monster, dude, and has sushi bar. Wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> what, what age again? 16. 16. Yeah. So you, you were just a freshman in high school still. Right. I was in, in ninth grade. Was it? Yeah, I was in ninth grade. I had my cooking show already. Uh, I had had it for a year, and and then I started running this this <laughs> operation. It was it was sick. It was crazy. I had no idea what I was doing. What what kind of uh, is this the the club? So it it's was funny it? because it, it was a it was the Asian fusion times. I don't know if you remember those times where we used to put soy sauce in absolutely everything, uh-huh. and and that was cool. So. So that's what we did. We opened a restaurant called Dalai Restaurant and Lounge, and it was like a Asian fusion type restaurant uh, with sushi and, and all of that. So I just didn't know anything. I just had a lot of, uh, I guess, good intentions. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, that project lasted for me about a year, uh, and then maybe a year and a half uh, until I finished school, and then I decided to leave uh, Venezuela. Okay. And then I went to Miami, spent a little bit of time working for free in a bunch of places, like intern, like you know, like staging. I staging, guess the yeah. right word. Uh, in Miami, in New Jersey, in Philadelphia, with a chef called Douglas Rodriguez, a James Beard awarded, by the way. In uh, then after that, I ended up in Cancun. I'm just giving you like the highlights. The, the highlights, right? Then I moved to Cancun. In Cancun, I I became a uh, uh, and chef instructor at Le Cordon Bleu, the, the French culinary school. Uh-huh. That was a <laughs> that was an, a fun experience to just simplify that. <laughs> it was really awesome. The technique was amazing. I, I feel like obviously I had so much more to learn than I had to teach, but hey, that's that's what happened. Yeah, but that's uh, I think that's that's part part of the uh, learning is is uh, teaching. I think oh, that yeah, that yeah. is the same thing with what you said. It was like you know the person that's been in the kitchen for four weeks. Versus the person who's been in the kitchen for one week, in that kitchen, that person has more experience, right? So they're going to show right. you how it is that we do it in this kitchen because, you know, like you mentioned too, it's like not every kitchen has got all the equipment. So you have to make do. And so how do you make do in this kitchen? Correct. So, so, but it's always the teaching that that is the learning. Teaching takes the, the, the knowledge to another level. It, it is it is really amazing i mean the only reason why i don't teach anymore is because i don't i didn't like the money <laughs> but, <laughs> but the, the rest of the experience was definitely a blessing uh anyways after uh the cooking at the cordon bleu and teaching there for about a year i tried to start a uh it was like an online cooking school it's a personal project and I like to talk about it because I like to, you know, let people know that not everything that people try in life makes sense. We just blew a bunch of cash and, and did not work. <laughs> we just never got it off the ground. What but, was um, it? We, my dad and I, we just had a personal project with some investors and tried to create a, a, a culinary school that, that was web-based. Now, if you, if you say that today, it sounds like, oh, that's not that interesting. But in 2010... So that was still kind of new, or I actually I don't think it existed at all. So I yeah. so tried to do that. It didn't really work. Uh, I can tell you a bunch of details about that. But uh, after that, I started working as a corporate chef for a uh, high-end seafood restaurant, uh, Mexican seafood restaurant group called La Trainera. This restaurant had two locations in Mexico City, two in Acapulco, and, you know, coming from sushi, so that Japanese uh, background, and then 
then Miami, New Jersey, Philadelphia, working with Douglas, lots of seafood. And then in Cancun, lots of seafood. So then going to La Tainera, uh, they brought me on board. And just to, just so you have an idea, the TV show did not stop. So I had four seasons of my cooking show. Uh, I, I would just go once a year to Buenos Aires, shoot the whole season, go back and just keep doing business as usual. Oh, okay. And so at this point, I'm in Mexico City. And I'm corporate chef for this uh, restaurant group, but they had all the intention of opening Pesca Seafood Culture here in Houston. The owners uh, had spent a few years here in Houston, and they just wanted to you know, start their concept or, or something like their concept, like a uh, updated, upgraded version of their concept here in Houston. And they thought I was the right person for it. Uh, <laughs> we know what happened, so maybe I wasn't the right person for it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what we meant. <laughs> Yeah, that's what you were in. I man, you were what, twenty years old? I started. I opened Pesca when I was twenty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I was there during the uh, the opening time for a short period that's of right. helping out. And, so they, uh, they. That's that's how I came to to America. <laughs> Permanently. I. Yeah, I did not know I was gonna move to the states. Uh, I didn't know I was gonna live in Houston. I never thought to myself. You know, Texas gonna be home to me, but I yeah, they brought me over here and we opened Pesca in April of 2015. And then, well, you know about Pesca. Pesca just was a blessing. This Pesca was an amazing experience. I yeah, I you know I, I feel very uh, yeah, just very lucky, man. I don't think it, most cooks. Yeah, but it was a blessing it, with a lot of hardship. I mean, it was a blessing that, you know, was didn't seem like it at the time, at, at one time. Well, quite frankly, everything about Pesca was a blessing. I mean, think about it this way. I was responsible for not just training, staffing, maintaining, you know, designing that uh, menu and all of that. But I had 30, 35 fish, different kinds of fish in my menu in any given day. So that's just insane, you know, and I don't think... I think a lot of, or most chefs are never exposed to that level, kind of quality and variety of, of fish and seafood. So that's what I mean by it was a blessing. I don't, I don't think I could pay for that kind of knowledge uh, unless I just had to do it firsthand. Uh, yeah. And it was, it was great. You're right. It was a stupid amount of work. Uh, I used to live across the street, so I basically lived there. Uh, and and while it lasted. It was great. It was fabulous. I mean, I, I think I fell in love with Houston. And, and quite frankly, that's Pesca is the whole reason why I came here. And and so I, I think today when I look back, I I don't regret anything. I mean, the end was a little shitty. I, I would agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but it, it made me and it took me to where I am today. And uh, like I, said, I could not be. Uh, you know, happier about that. yeah, uh, I can see what you're saying. I totally agree. I think that that those opportunities where you're able to be exposed to uh, so much of that one thing in your in your industry or in your in your craft, right? It's those are very very unique opportunities. Thirty fish on the on the menu at any given time, thereabouts. It's it's insane. Like you, the things that you learn that became innate to you. Are, are things that might take, you know, a decade for a different chef right. to get because you always... Right, and not just always... me, for, 
for all the people that worked there. I mean, but, I, I, I think it was fun, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was. But what I'm getting at is that that is as great as it is. I think is your disposition that made it into the opportunity that it was. So it's not necessarily the place as it is the person. And, you know, you kind of touched on that earlier, which is the, the attitude. You know, whenever you have a good attitude, then things tend to be to work out better. But and I'm saying that in the sense that it was a shitty ending. And for anybody that wants to look it up, you know, I'll post the uh, articles <laughs> on that. I'll do that myself. Well, well thanks. <laughs> but but and the reason why I want to I want to make it a point to, to point this out is that. There's a lot of mental health issues and depression and all that in the industry because people get treated poorly. Um, but I think that if n having the right attitude during those things and understanding that they're, they're, they're just moments, right, in life, um, small, sometimes, many times, short phases, if you have the right disposition, uh, you get past them and you take the experience for what it is and then you move on. And uh, that's what you did. And so now here you are after going through that experience and what are you doing today? So after leaving Pesca and like, well, you said you're going to link the article, so I want to talk much about it. But basically I ended with a non-compete situation where I couldn't really be a chef or chef at any other restaurant uh, in Harris County or so many miles around or something like that. Um, so that, that put me in a position, well, besides that, my, my work visa being canceled immediately after, you know, that job being terminated. Uh, and then that was just like, <laughs> it was a boomer. I also broke up with my girlfriend or she broke up with me, yeah. I think <laughs> is the right way to say it. Yeah. Uh, anyways, that's, that was the hardship. But um, I had to reinvent myself and reinvent myself meant different things at that time. Uh, I basically did all kinds of different jobs, but at the, at the end of the day, I realized that cooking is what I, you know, what I'm meant to do. And, and, I, and I think my mission is bigger than just cooking, but I think cooking is the language and how I will, you know, express uh, and communicate my, my mission, I guess, in life. That, so but it, it's also up, your creative, creative passion. Yeah, totally. Well, I'm not comparing myself. To any of these people believe me but you wouldn't say to picasso when are you gonna put those brushes down get rid of the canvas you've done it <laughs> you know, you, right. i'm an entertainer first and foremost but there's art involved here and an artist has an obligation to be en route to be going somewhere there's a journey involved here and you don't know where it is and that's the fun so you're always going to be seeking and looking and going and trying to challenge yourself so without sitting around thinking of that a lot right. it drives you and it, and it keeps you trying to be fresh, trying to be new, trying to call on yourself, call on yourself a little more, you know? So that's how I ended up doing restaurant consulting. So I, I, I reached out to uh, Chris Tripoli, who's a uh, famous restaurant consultant here in Houston. Uh, he started a company in 1994 called A La Carte Food Service Consulting Group. You see, Chris did a lot of work with, you know, independent, uh, well, independent at the beginning, some of some of the, the large brands that we know today like Salada or True Looks, he had a you know very big role in the development of those concepts and, and anyways he just had this company that I thought it was so cool and that was doing uh, what I wanted which was basically help 
you know, restaurants with what I know. I love the idea of working with people that were already successful. Uh, and why not say, you know, not say players, the players with the money, people that are really good at something already and maybe just help them with what I know, just help them get to the next level. And, and that's something that I've been really passionate about. Now, granted, that's not all I do. I also work with a lot of first time restaurant owners, but um, that's how it all began. And I just started as a culinary uh, consultant for the firm and then quickly became the culinary director. Within a year and a half working there, Chris decided to that it was time to retire and that he was, well, I guess he probably decided earlier, but uh, he disclosed <laughs> that he was going to retire and he was going to sell the business. And the, the other lady that was working there, a senior consultant, her name is Ashley Rosenfeld, and myself uh, step up and said, you know what, you're don't, don't, you're not, you don't need to sell the business because we're going to buy it. <laughs> and so uh, Ashley and I partner, and like I said, it, it was all very quickly, uh, within a year and a half, just working there. Uh, Ashley and I uh, partner up and, and purchase a la carte. And now that, that was January 1st of 2019. So two, 2019 was my first year as a business owner, as a business partner. And it, it's, it has just dramatically changed the way I look at everything, quite frankly. This is what I'm doing. <laughs> Which is good. I mean, I think you're, you're, you're very good at it because uh, you have that, uh, the one thing that a lot of chefs are missing, which is not just the ability to communicate what you want or need from someone whenever you're training them, but you have the enthusiasm uh, that a lot of chefs are, are, are missing. And again, I'm talking from my experience from being around chefs since the 90s, which is a different breed than kind of what you're starting to get now, which is people probably that are a bit more people person than they were once upon a time. But even then, right. I think that your enthusiasm and your ability to break down a process in training uh, makes a big difference. I love that we're talking in here like this is an interview and we work together, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> and it, okay, so let me tell you why I'm saying that. I'm saying that because when we did work together, the, the so far just one project, but in that one project, it was like, and you said it, but it, it was like I was thinking it and then you, you, you verbalized it, which was you trained this person that was going to be in charge of this kitchen to the point that he thought that it was his creation. Everything was, was his. And you're like, yeah, I got him to that point to where he doesn't. He feels like he doesn't need me anymore. That that took that took a minute, and that took a minute because uh, cooks, we all have our egos, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. But you know, in consulting, you're not in for the credit, buddy. You know, you're you're certainly now, you know, creating systems and creating concepts that can be consistently executed at a profit. You know, you're creating models, you're creating uh, menus, but you're really just behind the curtains at the end of the day you know if the owner you know loves the idea of saying uh these are family recipes or these recipes have been in my family for generations and and that's fine you know and and it it took me a couple of years certainly doing this to to now understand it fully well i think at least that that part and and embrace it and, and love it and and not only that that allowed me to do something that i would have never before you know, being a chef and putting my name on everything that I did, it, it would have been really hard for me to open, you know, a, a burger joint or a pizza shop or a Vietnamese 
restaurant concept or just anything that was not my style you know what i mean right or and and quite frankly now that i understood how to use my knowledge to help other people turn you know their dreams into reality that put me in a, in a in a great spot because that allowed me to open you know a concept where all the foods gluten free dairy free refined sugar free or you know bar food over here or like i said vietnamese or thai and that just allowed me to expose uh the old chef omar that did only his own thing and and yes i had a big head and, and all of that <laughs> and now to be a much i think more rounded professional human being and shit just sheer you know be able to make more money <laughs> which <Yeah>. is also, <laughs> which is also <laughs> great is also, it's kind of a big deal you know what i mean <laughs> yeah so then so i mean you're 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 it's great to see you to have started to round out um your life around that because like you know you, you just mentioned is like this is not just i'm better chef or i'm a better consultant or i'm better um professional but it also you're rounding out your own personal traits as well and i think that that is important because that balance gets lost in our industry or with the drive to try to be better than or the best um just gets lost in our industry too much and so the next thing i want to ask is like is something uh, personal okay right which is right now you're you're sick tell me a little bit about that so right now <laughs> i well basically well you know we're going through this apocalyptic situation and <laughs> yeah. and the so-called coronavirus has changed the way everybody you know lives life right now and and i you're right i tested positive last tuesday for for covid19 i'm definitely very blessed that i'm not showing uh severe symptoms i do have all those symptoms that you know people are talking about besides fever which i don't have thankfully you know i have the chills and i have the muscle pains uh but i think and, and yes the first few days i was just locked up at home and kind of you know crashing and burning and and, and just being upset but let me tell you how how i see a lot of positives into this nightmare that is going on okay uh, and and the, the first thing is that i feel like it's changed the dynamic and it's put everything in perspective in the sense that this is one thing that is equal to every single one of us doesn't matter whether you're you know hispanic or you're tall or you're short or you're you know black or you're whatever you are we are all getting it right so i feel i think that's uh i know as, as, as ugly as it is i think that has made everybody understand that we're actually one team you know and we're the human team and and and, and i i think that was a good thing uh, at least that's how i see it the the second thing is um for people like me that i do have a creative you know job and i part of my job is to be creative actually get paid to create stuff for others uh, but i'm normally not able or i normally don't allow myself to have time to create just for me you know it's just to create or just brainstorm or think about things that i normally don't think about and so being forced to you know push back on or to delay all of my you know deadlines and tastings and and openings and all the stuff that i normally do at work 
just forced me to spend some time with myself. Yeah. You know, to just spend a lot of time <laughs> just dealing with my own thoughts. And, and I think a, a lot of uh, fresh ideas are, are literally just coming from that. And I think that's a blessing. And I think, uh, you know, without COVID in the future, I definitely want to make this part of my life. I want to make sure that I am forcing myself to be more creative. And, and the best way is to just break the routine. Uh, so that's one another great thing that I that I have learned and, and appreciated from this situation. Let me so, see, one more. Go ahead, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I'm just, I'm just saying it's, it's, it's like uh, the, uh, I mean, right now, as far as the COVID is, to you, this has been um, pretty mild, right? Because you, you, you sound like you have a lot of energy. I mean, you, you sound like you're, you're yourself, right, to me. And, um, and I think that my other, my other point in this is that before you test, you knew you were positive. The minute that you showed symptoms, you pretty much quarantined, didn't you? Right. Well, I mean, I, I will. T I will tell anybody that if you get COVID, you will most likely know, because I mean, unless you really have zero symptoms. Right. In my case, I have mild symptoms, but I have symptoms. And as soon as I lost the sense of taste and smell, I I was like. Okay, okay. <laughs> something is something is off, and, and immediately, you know, I, I self quarantined and and just did what I had to do until until I got my positive result. I will say that I think everybody could do and should do something that I just learned when I when I officially knew that I had COVID is uh, just behave like you're infected. You know, that just that changes completely the way you're gonna behave uh, well instead of thinking. Hey, I don't want to get infected. I don't want anybody else to give it to me. And and let me tell you, in that regard, we're just not we're just not educated enough, right? We just don't know. People well, are, I, I don't people think cover themselves from the people that they don't like, that they don't trust, which I find very yeah. Funny. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm gonna say is like the information has been out for months because I can say that months ago, I mean, it was said that a mask would help, right? And then I think it was back in May, it was, well, it seems like asymptomatics are the ones that are actually spreading it the most because they're walking around without a mask, right? Because uh, not knowing that they're infected. And one thing for me is that in this situation, all this pushback that we're getting from people who don't want to wear masks is, in, in my opinion, uh, people that don't want to take care of the, of the community, their community, whatever community they are in. Because if I wear a mask, it's not so I don't get sick unless it's an N95 mask. Those are the ones that are really going to protect you. If I'm just wearing a cloth around, is in case that I'm infected and I don't know because I don't have any symptoms, that I don't get you infected, right? Because right. once you have the symptoms, well, then you can go test it, then you can self-quarantine, then you can do all of these different things. But up until that point, if I wear a mask, I get infected, I'm not spreading it. That's that's kind of the, the, the thing that, that I was going for because you felt, you know, okay, I lost test, taste uh, and and uh, my, my sense of smell. I'm not just going to keep going out there to restaurants and consult because uh, I don't have a fever or because uh, the body, I don't have body aches. And then the next day, then you get the body aches and you get, instead of just saying, okay, this is enough symptoms for me to pull back for a second, uh, go get tested. 
and um, and then find out for sure, and then go on from there. Because I, I think that that is what we need to be doing for one another right now. I think we should all, uh, and I mean, we know, right, that technically, you know, most people are not going to have awful symptoms. Most people are going to have a pretty decent time uh, with COVID. Right, <laughs> the and then problem, other people are going to die. <laughs> but there's a lot of people that are going to die. And so that, that tells me, and, and, and I hope everybody can understand it now, that we just all need to behave like we have it. Because literally, it's so much different. Once When you're thinking, oh, I need to protect myself from others, then you're just being selective and sometimes you put the mask on, sometimes you don't. When you're around your friends and your family, people you like, you're like, oh, well, I guess it's fine. And now when you behave like if you are infected, then it's a completely different mindset. Yeah. And and, and just like I'm doing it now, I, I just invite everybody and encourage everybody to do that. If, you know, I just want to be a good human. Shit. I know the aftermath of COVID is going to come, you know, in months or maybe years. I don't know. And, yeah. And God knows. I mean, I don't know what it means to me. But that takes me to the next point that I think, I think it's very important. And even though, just there's some, there might be some, you know, side effects or, or, or aftermath to the situation. We, I think we should all uh, be open and understand that this is happening because uh, or with a purpose. And I think that's that's very very powerful if we all understand that there is actually something for everybody to learn. Uh, with what's going on and and there is something that we need to uh, unlock there's a knowledge that we need to unlock and and something that is gonna make us stronger better and it's gonna you know we're gonna come out in the other side even better than we were as individuals and as a society and and, and I think and I think uh, though it's really hard to see that today uh, because of all the you know terrible deaths and and illness and and personal drama that's just happening right now uh, there will be some good things that come from this and and there is a reason for it and we just need to be 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 just willing to listen you know yeah well um i really appreciate you taking the time for to talk to me about this especially uh, okay. on the podcast especially since i have all this time <laughs> <laughs> break up your day a little bit <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate you checking on me, and, and this has also allowed me to to see, you know, how many people uh, care and and are just checking on me, and, and that's just—it's a very overwhelming, good, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly good feeling. Well, so thank you for having me. No, my my pleasure, man. Um, I appreciate you. Okay, Love you, man. Talk soon. All right, we'll do. So as you can tell, Omar's story is truly unique and, and, and refreshing in many ways. And, and once again, I want to thank him for being on the, on the podcast. And this is my effort to um, bring to you a bit of clarity on how COVID-19 is affecting some of the people in our community. On my next episode, I'm going to talk to uh, one of our colleagues' mother who already had uh, covid and she experienced a bit more severe symptoms, but also had a different set of realizations during her bout with the, the virus. So please, 
Make sure that you uh, like, subscribe, and follow whichever platform that you're in uh, and wherever it is that you listen to your favorite podcast. You can also find me on uh, The Open Bar Experience on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, you can find me, David Dacry, at Dacry underscore TV on Twitter. Um, also, this is uh, you can find the website at openbar.space. And in the comments section, you're going to find all the links to relevant information on this episode. So thank you for listening. Remember, take care of yourself, take care of each other and keep the conversation going.